The following sermon was delivered in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, it's so good to be with you um, all this morning and um, such a privilege to, uh, to, to be able to preach God's Word. Um, I asked Frank, um, how long do you normally preach? Uh, because uh, recently one, one person said, suggested, maybe you could preach a little shorter message. And uh, when I found out that he preaches 50 to 60 minutes, uh, my soul was consoled. <laughs> All right, good. Your, your people are pretty accustomed to, to long preaching because this might go a little longer. All right. And I remember preaching a, a few months ago for uh, Tony Sinelli, um, another professor at the seminary. Uh, over in Pleasanton, and uh, I was so nervous to preach at uh, my professor's church on his pulpit for the first time that I preached for, it was, it it normally went for 45 minutes, but I was so nervous that I preached for 20 minutes. Everybody was like, what's going on? Was that your introduction? And after the first service, his son, Michael Sinelli, came up to me and said, hey, um, maybe you can extend your sermon a little longer for the second service. And uh, so, yeah, I was, uh, but, um, yeah, that was, that was just my nerves, but um, it was, uh, like I said, uh, my soul was consoled when Frank told me that he preaches for about 50 to 60 minutes. And um, so um, I, I like to share this story. Maybe I've shared this with you before, the last time that I was here, but uh, Frank's is such a, a dear brother, and you guys are really blessed to have him as your, your pastor here. Uh, he's been really influential in my life and in me for, in, in forming my, my own theology and making it my own, and uh, I remember... Um, one time in class in theology proper, and uh, I appreciate that class because he helped me formulate. I, I became more, I was already Trinitarian, but I was always, uh, after that class, I was more, even more mindful of uh, the Trinity and, and seeing the Trinity all over the scriptures. But in that class, it was so funny because uh, there was one class where um, he was talking about the spiritual gifts, and uh, I, I think I was the, the, a lone ranger in there. I was the only continuationist, the, one that, the only one out of all my classmates in that class I believe that the gifts have continued. And I was, I was thinking to myself, I hope he doesn't ask us. How many of us in here are continuationists or cessationists? Because I'd have to raise my hand. Well, um, to, to my fear, he asked at the end of the class, and he, he said... Um, uh, well, we, I think we're in a pretty safe environment here. How many of you guys in here are continuationists? And I was sitting in the front, mind you. <laughs> and, uh, and so I reluctantly raised my hand. And, uh, and I looked back. And I was the only one raising my hand. And Frank said to the class, he asked the class, uh, are, are there any other continuationists in here? Or are the rest of you guys just cowards? And I felt so relieved. I was like, yes, thank you. I'm the only one in cur- courage, uh, uh, like, that has enough courage to, to, to raise my hand. But that, that, was, a, that was a fun time in, in my seminary experience. Um, enough of that. Uh, I'm, I'm here to, uh, as I said, I have the privilege of preaching God's word. And it's my hope that God will bless each and every one of you. And me as well, as I preach the word, not just to you, but to myself as well. Because we all need God's word. We live in America, and I'm pretty sure that many of you here either have a Facebook account or know someone that has a Facebook account. Whether you hate it or love it, Facebook is pretty much here to stay for a little longer. Uh, I have a Facebook account, and if you're a friend of mine, you're, you'd notice that uh, the majority of my posts consists of my little baby girl. 
Uh, she's more popular than me. And uh, as Frank said, she's a lot more prettier than me, for sure. And um, a, few, a few years ago, the, uh, Facebook came out with this new feature. It was so, it's so convenient, and uh, I, w- I was excited when it came out. This new feature on Facebook, it's the edit feature. And uh, so when you go on Facebook, you can write a post, you can put pictures on there, and if you mess up, uh, maybe a grammatical error, or you forgot to post uh, another picture on there, you can go back on that previous post, click the edit feature, and change uh, or, or redact some grammatical error, which is important for me because I have some uh, grammar Nazi friends out there that are quick to point something out. And, uh, and so it, it's, it's so convenient to be able to go back and, uh, and fix your grammatical errors or put a picture in there that you forgot to post and, uh, and just uh, and, and make it right. How convenient to have an edit feature. How many of us here wish that we had a real-life edit feature? How many of you here wish that you could go back to something that you said, to something that you did, and edit that out of your life? Maybe it's something that you said to a spouse, uh, something that you, uh, how, how you... Um, Miss Stewart, you, didn't, you weren't a good steward of, of your finances, whatever it may be. How many of us wish that we could go back in time and just edit that out? Unfortunately, that's not how life works. Life is not a Facebook account. And, and it could be big, to, uh, it could be small failures to big failures. How many of you here uh, wish, uh, are, are Say to yourselves, I wish I could go back in time and study harder on my exam. I wish I I would have gotten ready on time. That way I wouldn't have gotten a speeding ticket. I wish, or or on a more serious note, I wish I I wouldn't have let my marriage fall through the cracks. And now my marriage is a mess, or even worse, now I'm divorced. The main idea of the text this morning that we're going to be uh, covering in Second Chronicles, the, the main idea that you need to know from the outset right now is that God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is greater than your sin. So beginning in verse 1 of Second Chronicles chapter 33, it says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he built and he burnt his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery. 
and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And carved, and the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have uh, commanded them. All the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he rebuilt or he built an an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley. And for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. And all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in, and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace, offerings, and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. As I said, the main point of this passage that I believe God wants his people to know, that God wants you to know... And believe with all of your mind and with all of your heart is that His grace is greater than your sin. And we will see that. We're going to see that in how God dealt with this king. This king of Judah. We'll we'll see that as, as we see the profile of King Manasseh. We're going to see it in his dealings with Manasseh's rebellion. In his ruin. His repentance and then his restoration. So, beginning with Manasseh's rebellion, in verses 1 through 9, uh, we're going to look at a few aspects of Manasseh's rebellion, the symptoms or the form of his rebellion, the root of his rebellion, and then lastly, the severity of his rebellion. And so first, the symptoms and the form of Manasseh's rebellion. We're told in verse 6, that he burned his sons. And this is an atrocious, a very heinous act that Manasseh committed. And it was forbidden by the Lord before they even entered into the promised land. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 3, it reads this. You shall not do as 
they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And it was one of the practices of the Canaanite people to offer up their children to their God, specifically the God Molech. And this king, God's chosen king in Judah, disobeyed. He didn't listen to what God instructed his people through Moses to not follow in their ways. He disobeyed and he burned his sons as the people of Canaan did. Next, it says that he used omens. Again, in verse 6, he, 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 he dealt with sorcery, fortune-telling, mediums, and necromancers. This is another uh, um, a thing that, uh, that the Lord had forbidden them to do before they went into the promised land. And another practice that the Canaanites uh, did and, and, and the Lord forbade. In Levit Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, it says, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Two strikes for King, King Manny. <laughs> he not only burned his sons, but he also uh, dealt with and, and sought the, the words and, and the, the things that the omens and sorcerers had to offer. And, and so there's two strikes there for, for Manasseh. And then in verse 9, it says, it, we're told that he influenced not just himself, but the entire people of Israel. He influenced the entire nation to go astray. When we look at sin, we often place emphasis on the shape of sin as opposed to the root of sin. Therefore, many in the church today uh, have the tendency to focus on what some call behavior modification. And we, we see sinful and negative behavior and forget that those sinful behaviors have a root. They're coming from somewhere. And because we forget or fail to address the root of sin, we focus mainly on modifying our sinful or negative behaviors. And because we fail to cut sin at its root, the problem comes back. You may be victorious over your sin for a number of days, weeks, even months, and yet you revert back. You find yourself backsliding. So, for example, when we see an alcoholic, we focus on the, the drinking. When we see anger issues, we focus on trying to deal with anger issues by anger management. And the list just goes on and on and on. But then, as I said, there is a root to those sinful behaviors that we commit. And we're going to see the root of Manasseh's rebellion, uh, rebellion beginning in, in verse 3. It says that he uh, rebuilt high places. He erected altars and worshipped them. And then in verse 4 and 5, it repeats it. And, and, and we're told that he built altars to the foreign gods of the Canaanites. You see, at the root of Manasseh's sin problem was that it was that he substituted God, Yahweh, with false gods of the surrounding nations. He thought that these false gods of the Canaanites would be able to give him what only God alone could give him. And therefore he worshipped the Asherah. He worshipped Molech. 
And then we're going to see, and then we see the severity of his, his sin issue. In verses 2 and 6, we're told that he did all of this in the sight of Yahweh, in the sight of the Lord. And then in verses 4 and 5, it goes on and it says that he built these altars in the house of the Lord, in the house of Yahweh. And then in 7 and 8, it says that he carved an image, again, in the house of God. And, and what's, what's even more severe, in verse 7, we're told that it says that of which this house that Manasseh was building these altars of, uh, to these false gods. It says, in, regarding this house of God, the house of the Lord, it says, of this house, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So what does this house of God, the house of the Lord, represent? It represents the, the nearness of God to his people, the presence of God with his people. It's where God met with his people. And this king, Manasseh, was building Altars in the house of the Lord, his God. What's going on here? He's committing spiritual adultery. He's committing spiritual adultery. And for us to feel the full weight of what's going on, uh, just uh, uh, use your sanctified imagination with me for a second. Imagine a husband who has a wife, who, who's, uh, and this wife is nothing but faithful, loving, kind, and generous to him. Their marriage is wonderful at first, but after a while, he becomes unfaithful. And he, imagine this, this husband bringing in mistresses into his house where his wife is. Week after week, there's a new woman, a new mistress that he's bringing into the house. Well, that's exactly what Manasseh is doing by building altars in the house of the Lord his God. He's doing all of this in the very presence of the Lord his God. He is committing spiritual adultery. It is severe. But before you and I want to crucify Manasseh and cast him off as the vilest of sinners, burning his sons on the altar and seeking necromancers and so forth, let's remember that we're no better off. And let's remember that Manasseh isn't the standard of righteousness that our lives are supposed to be a reflection of. Christ is the standard. God is the standard. And when we compare our righteousness with Manasseh's righteousness, some of us may appear to be angelic creatures. But when we compare our righteousness with that of Christ, we all look like devils rather than angels. And when we're wearing dark clothing, it's easy for us to, to miss or not notice the smudge of dirt on our clothing. However, it's a different story when you and I are wearing all white. Even the smallest speck of dirt can be noticed. Likewise, our sin can go unnoticed when we're comparing ourselves with other people. But with the backdrop of Christ's righteousness, even the speck of a white lie is noticeable and our sinful nature revealed. And so let's not quickly compare our lives with that of 
Manasseh and think that we're better than him. And then also some of you may possibly be tuning me out and saying to yourself, you know, Dennis, uh, uh, how, how can this passage be applicable to me? He's talking about idolatry. I don't commit idolatry. I may commit some other sin, but idolatry isn't an issue that I deal with in my life. You may think that way if we're focusing merely on the, the form of idolatry, the shape of idolatry. But one thing we need to, to, to know about idolatry is that its form and its shape can, take, uh, can, 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 can vary. Throughout the history of time, idolatry has always existed. It just may look a, different, a little different than how uh, people practice idolatry in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how we practice it now. But when we think about the essence or the principle of idol worship, it's a different story. Tim Keller has helped me formulate my uh, my, my uh, definition, my, my theology on idolatry. He says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and I quote, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything becomes more, if anything, becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol, end quote. So with that definition, church, we, we all have the potential to become idolaters because it's not necessarily evil things that we can turn into idols. It can be good things that can become idols in our lives. Keller, Keller goes on, and I quote, The human, human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them, end quote. So essentially, we become idolaters when we make the, the, the means of God's blessing, anything in this created world or anyone in this created world, and, and make them an end. We become idolaters when we begin to put those things in the created realm, be it people or things, and put them in the place of God thinking that they can give us what only God can give us. It's exactly what uh, Jeremiah was talking about in chapter 2, verse 13, when he said, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've turned their backs on me. The, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Just a few examples of how we can become idolaters. We, we idolize, for example, we, we idolize marriage when we think that it can, it, that it is the ultimate source that can fulfill our love tank. Therefore, some spouses work hard at trying to mold their spouses to be the husband or the wife that they want, that they think they should be, because if they achieve that, they'll finally be happy. If my husband could just, you fill in the blank. If my wife would just, uh, you fill in the blank, then I would be happy. And you see how that works? 
You think that marriage can give you that ultimate fulfillment of happiness, and therefore we idolize marriage as a, not just a means to, uh, to an end, that, that it is the end, a happy marriage. Idolatry, brothers and sisters. And then we think that I, we, we, we idolize sex, sexuality, when we think that it's the ultimate source of pleasure that can fill our pleasure tank. Therefore, many men and some women worship at the altar of the computer screen to find their fulfillment. And then here's another one, we, uh, and it might um, catch some of you off guard, but we idolize justice, a good thing, right? Just, our God is a God of justice, but we can idolize justice. When we think that by withholding forgiveness to those that have hurt us or wronged us, that we're somehow going to find closure and peace and justice. When in all actuality, we've really put ourselves in the place of God in his role as judge. Do you see how idolatry works? But what does God say in his word? Vengeance belongs to him. And so when you and I withhold forgiveness to someone we put ourselves in the place of God acting in the role as judge you see brothers and sisters idolatry has not gone away it has not disappeared it's still here it's very much alive it just looks a little differently we're not worshiping trees or the sun we're worshiping something else but it's still here it just looks differently we're all building our lives around something The question that I ask you is, what are you building your life around? What idols have you raised up or erected in the temple of your hearts? What are you worshiping? Next week, so so that's Manasseh's rebellion. Next we move on to his ruin in verses 10 and 11. It says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. This, when I read this passage, it's just this entire passage, this entire section, it's just uh, uh, shining forth so much, uh, so many of uh, the, the attributes of God. And in just these uh, couple verses here, we see the patience and kindness of the Lord. We see the anger and discipline of the Lord. We see the, the, the patience and kindness of the Lord in verse 10 when it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. He should have wiped them out. They broke the Mosaic law. And yet God still... In the book of Kings, it says that uh, it it further describes this. And God said that he he sent prophets to them to get them to come back and turn from their sinful ways to come back to him. And yet they, in, in, in this passage here, it says that they paid no attention to the Lord, even though he was calling them back. How kind, how patient the Lord is. This king was burning his sons, seeking necromancer, seeking sorcery, disobeying God blatantly in his sight, committing spiritual adultery. And how does God treat this king? It says that he tried to speak to them. 
And then we see not just the patience and kindness of Yahweh, we also see the anger and discipline of the Lord in this passage. We're told that in verse 11, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. We see the anger and the discipline of Yahweh in this passage. He brought the Assyrians, the kings of the commanders of Assyria against Manasseh to discipline him and to discipline his people. And we also see the sovereignty of Yahweh in this passage. It was, who was it that raised up the Assyrians? We're told that it was, uh, it was the Lord that raised up the, uh, the commanders of Assyria. He used Assyria as his disciplining rod to correct his people. In Proverbs 21 verse 1, it says that the king's heart is a stream of water and the hand of, uh, in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wills. Manasseh is learning so much about the Lord here. He's learning all about the justice and righteousness of Yahweh. And it's not because The Lord is some mean God, some mean judge in the sky, some ogre in the sky. That's evident from verse 10 where we're told that the Lord, that Yahweh tried, or not tried, he was actually speaking to his people to come back. It was their hearts that were wicked. Manasseh is experiencing the consequences of a life that's turned from worshiping the one true God to worshiping false idols. When you begin to read the whole counsel of Scripture and not just cherry-pick your favorite places in the Bible, you see a more accurate picture of who God is. When you just skip over certain sections, you do yourself, brothers and sisters, a disservice because in doing so, we develop an incomplete and inadequate idea of the person and character of God. And in this passage, we see an array of God's attributes and his character that most people shy away from. And what what do we do when we do that? We end up with a God of our own imagination, a God that resembles more the picture of a kind, benevolent grandfather that never gets angry with his grandchildren, even when they're told, hey, please don't let my kids do this, and yet we allow them to do it, right? And, uh, but uh, that's a God of our ima- um, imagination. The God of our imagination is a loving God, but he's not a righteous God. He's a kind God, but he's not a God that disciplines his people. He's, he, the reality is he is a merciful God, but he also holds his people accountable to sin. And in this passage, we see a gamut of God's attributes He's not merely gracious, he's also righteous. And that righteousness is expressed in righteous anger. He's sovereign over all the nations and he raised up the commanders of the Assyrian Empire to discipline his people. And this righteous God is not just going to let Manasseh off the hook. Literally, the passage says that he, was, he, he had chains put in his nose and he was bound. Manasseh was banking all of his hope, all of his dreams on these false gods. But where are they now? They're nowhere to be found. They can't help him because they've proved to be false gods, false idols. Manasseh's experience experiencing the ruined life due to his sinful choices. His life is a wreck. He's ruined. 
Brothers and sisters, what are the consequences that you've experienced as a result of worshiping false idols? Maybe some of, some of you are walking in that situation now and you're still experiencing the, the devastation of choices that you've made in the past, maybe years ago, and you're still dealing with it. You're dealing with the ramifications of sins of days gone by because of the choices that you've made. How many of you are walking through the wreckage of past mistakes in your life, past sinful choices, blatant sinful choices, and you're experiencing the wreckage and ruin of those choices? Maybe some of, some of you are experiencing, because of those choices, financial ruin. Maybe some of you are experiencing the, the broken family, even a broken marriage, and worse, divorce. Some of you may be experiencing the loss of job, loss of friendships, or the loss of life by way of abortion, the loss of dignity, loss of reputation because of the sinful choices that we've made in the past. And maybe you're not experiencing any of those things that I've just list, listed here, but you know the, the, the sinful choices that you've made and you're still walking in the wreckage of those past mistakes. Maybe it could be drug abuse. Maybe it could be addiction to alcohol. Maybe it could be addiction to uh, pornography. Whatever it is, you're experiencing a ruined and wrecked life because of your past sinful choices. And you're in the same position that Manasseh was in. Your life is ruined. Your life is wrecked. Maybe some of you come here on Sunday mornings and you have a smile on your face. But deep down inside, you know, you're struggling with some sort of sinful choice that you did. A sinful choice that you've made. In our heart of hearts, we know that that is the reality of the Christian life. That we fail every week and yet on Sunday mornings we put a smile on our face before our brothers and sisters and we act like everything's okay. But deep down inside we're struggling. We're struggling because of our sinful choices. Well, brothers and sisters, the next thing that we're going to look at is Manasseh's repentance in verses 12 through 13. If you find yourself in Manasseh's shoes and you've done things, you've said things in your life, that you wish you could edit out of your real, not your fake Facebook account, but your real live Facebook account, the, your, your Facebook life account that those closest to you actually know really, truly, fully, and genuinely. The, the, the Facebook account that your spouse knows, that your siblings know, that your children or your coworker, your neighbor knows, or your closest friends, that real life Facebook account. If you think that there's no coming back from your devastating choices, your, the sinful choices, your mistakes that you've made, let's move on to verses 12 and 13. Thank God for verses 12 and 13. This is, I like to call this section the, the, the Old Testament version of Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, where he says, but God being rich in mercy, in verses 12 and 13, it reads, In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. 
So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. What grace. How deep the grace and mercy is of the Lord our God. What scandalous grace we're confronted here with in, in this passage. How many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, if you imagine yourself, again, let's use our sanctified imagination. If you were uh, of the, uh, the tribe of Judah, let's, let's imagine ourselves in that time and, and, and Manasseh wants to come back and become our king again. Oh, you want to come back? I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that many of us would have this kind of attitude. Oh, so you want to come back? Into our lives, King Manny, after you've burnt your sons as an offering to these false gods, you've led us astray by following necromancers and sorcerers, you want to come back after you've brought the discipline of the Lord upon us, you want to come back into our life? We'd probably treat this man like an outcast, as if he was a modern-day child molester. You can't come back here. We'd put up our guard, we'd put up walls and not let this guy back into our lives. But is that how God treats this very sinful king that blatantly disobeyed him, that broke God's laws? Does God make him jump through hoops before he accepts him again? Manasseh, you know, I'm willing to take you back. I'm willing to let you back into my covenant community. But before I welcome you back, King Manny, you've got to pray a hundred Hail Marys. You've got to read Leviticus 50 times. And not just that, you better memorize it and recite it to me 50 times perfectly. And you've got to sacrifice a hundred bulls. Fix your attitude, Manasseh. Stop burning your sons on the altar. Change your behavior. And then you can come back to me. And then I'll love you. And then I will forgive you. That's not how God treats him. That's not how Yahweh treats this sinful king. The cure, brothers and sisters, the cure to our past mistakes, the cure to our past failures, our rebellion against God, our sin against God. In order to be restored to God isn't to focus primarily on, our, on fixing our sinful behavior. It's not first and foremost about changing our doing. It begins with believing. The primary issue at hand is an issue of the heart. As we saw earlier in Manasseh's rebellion, the root of his rebellion was that he was worshiping false gods. That was an issue of his heart. So what we need most isn't primarily behavior realignment. Stop sinning more. Stop drinking more, stop being angry more, stop gossiping more or whatever your sin is. Once our hearts are aligned with God, our behavior follows suit. The first place is to seek the favor of Yahweh. What did, uh, the, notice what this passage doesn't say. It doesn't say that Manasseh sought the favor of Yahweh via self-justification, via self-deflecting, via self-minimizing or self-help or self-denial. 
He didn't pull uh, uh, an Adam and say, hey, it's that woman that you gave me. He didn't say, oh, it's those, those people, those Canaanites, it's their fault. No, he didn't do any of that. Manasseh is a man that's been completely undone. He's a man that's completely wrecked because of his poor, sinful choices, which led to devastating consequences. But he's reached a point in his life where he's got nowhere else to turn. He's got nowhere else to go. Don't miss this, uh, this portion in this passage where it says, uh, it's, it's a key verse. It says that, it says, in his distress, he sought the Lord. In his distress. The, uh, the, the, but how, I ask you, how did he get in his distress? Yes, he was the root cause of it, right? He, he worshipped false idols. But who brought the commanders of the Assyrian Empire upon the people of Judah. It was the Lord. It was Yahweh that raised up the Assyrian Empire to discipline his people. Is your life in distress? Is your soul in distress right now? It could just be, brothers and sisters, that Yahweh, the Lord, is bringing that divine ordained distress in your life to shake you up in order to wake you up from your slumber, from your sinful choices. Maybe the reason that your world is being rocked and shaken is because God is stomping on your idol. Quite possibly. We may not like it, And we may be in spiritual discomfort when God does that, but it's for our good, our benefit, our joy, and ultimately God's glory when he stops on our idols. Are you in distress this morning? What's the answer to your distress because of things that you've done, because of sinful choices that you've made? Don't make the mistake of thinking that it's if you pray more, if you read your Bible more, if you're more consistent with your morning devotions or your evening devotions, that then, then God will love you. Then God will forgive you. Brothers and sisters, you've got to go to the Lord and seek his favor. Favor. What was, what was the key to this dramatic change or this attitude change in Manasseh's life? And how do we seek the favor of the Lord? Well, in verse 12, it tells us that he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Another question that we've got to ask now regarding this is that, uh, uh, what does it mean to humble ourselves before God? We read the scriptures and there's so many, like we're, we're familiar with Christianese, Christianese language. Love God. What does that look like? Humble, humble God, what does that actually look like or what does that actually mean? Well, in, I believe that uh, Peter helps us out with what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord our God. How do you seek the favor of the Lord? How do you, uh, you, you find restoration for your re- relationship with the Lord? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, it reads this. Humble yourselves. 
Humble yourselves. That is the command, the imperative in that passage. Uh, Peter is telling God's people to humble themselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm not going to bore you with... Uh, the, uh, with all the grammar that's going on in here, suffice it to know for you, for your case right now, is that when he commands God's people to humble themselves, he defines what humbling or how they are to humble themselves when he says, uh, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter defines for us what humbling ourselves means. It is by casting our anxieties upon the Lord. Do you have spiritual anxiety this morning because of your sinful choices, because of past mistakes? Brothers and sisters, you are to trust in the gospel, believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ if you seek consolation for your weary, anxious soul. I think that sometimes it's easier for us as believers to believe in our sin more than the immeasurable grace of our God. Thinking that we, we use that as a form of self-justification, right? If I, am just, if I just beat myself up, if I'm convicted enough, if I feel guilty enough, then God will be pleased with me. Don't fall into that trap, brothers and sisters. Don't fall into the trap of burying yourself in your sin. Bury yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will find consolation for your weary and anxious soul. And what is the gospel? What is the gospel? I believe that if you... Uh, if you look closely enough in this passage that we're reading, that we're studying this morning, that you'll see it embedded in this very passage. The gospel of Christ embedded in this passage. And we do that by way of contrasting the life of Manasseh with the life of Jesus. What do we have in the life of Manasseh? What do we see in this passage? We're told in, uh, that Manasseh was God's king. Ruling in God's kingdom. A place of honor. A place of dignity. Then because of his rebellion, he hum he was, he, he's humbled. We're told that he's put in chains and hooks and taken into Babylonian captivity. Exile. He's brought low. He starts up here and he's brought low. But then he repents and God, what? Restores him to a place of honor. What about Jesus? What about the life of Christ? Doesn't that remind you of the life of Christ? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, probably a very familiar passage to many of you here. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see? The, the difference between Manasseh and Jesus Christ is that Manasseh, though he started in a place of dignity, was forcefully humbled by the Lord, taken into exile, and when he repented, was put back in a place of honor. Contrast Jesus with that. He wasn't forcefully asked or forcefully taken out of his place of honor. He willingly humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, dying on the cross. And what happened after that? He was raised up again to a place of honor. You see, what a wonderful shadow we have here, a picture of the gospel in this passage. You are to believe in that, brothers and sisters. Seek the favor of the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord your God by believing in that gospel. Not the false gospel of self-righteousness. You're to cling to Christ. If your soul is weary, if your soul needs consolation, grab Christ. Take hold of his gospel. Notice also that God was moved by his humility. This is this is really the most important part of the text, in my opinion. One of them, anyways. It's, it's not the humility and the repentance of this wicked king, Manasseh. Rather, it's the great mercy and grace of God, the great mercy of Yahweh. He didn't strike him down. He didn't kill him. He didn't wipe him out. He gave him grace. He gave him mercy. And that's why... Precisely, uh, that's precisely why I believe that God was so moved and more than willing to come to Manasseh's aid. Through Manasseh's wrecked and ruined life, God was going to manifest his glory and put himself on display in how he deals or how he dealt with this sinful king. Through Manasseh's ruin, God would teach him who he is. Hence it says, then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Let me read that for you. Verse 13, and when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, that Yahweh is God. Brothers and sisters, if you're in distress this morning, it may be that God has given you that divinely ordained distress as a gift to teach you who he is. And what is it that Manasseh learned about the Lord, his God? You know, I, when, when I was reading this passage, I, I, I chuckled because it's, uh, it's actually the, finally, someone that can actually... Uh, contextually apply 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And what does it say there? You hear this verse used often like of, of our nation, like Christians use this verse about uh, American Christianity, and it reads this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive 
their sin and heal their land. Finally, somebody that can apply that text in their life and say, I'm using it contextually. This king, humbling himself. He's learning the, the, the genuineness of God's word, the truth of his promises, and God is healing him. God is showing him who he is. But, uh, so that's the immediate context of, uh, of what Manasseh is learning about the Lord his God. But I think further out in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, he learns that truth as well about who the Lord his God is. And in that passage, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And, and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Uh, he definitely knows the, sec- the, the second portion of that passage, right? He was, he was humbled by the Lord and he was disciplined by the Lord. But now he also knows the first portion of that passage. That the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, He is slow to anger. He is abounding. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org. Even to sinners. In church antiquity, there was this heretic. His name was Marcion. And he taught that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. But as, as, as I read this passage, as I think about this passage, isn't this the same God that Jesus reveals to us in Luke chapter 15? About the, the prodigal son who squandered all his father's inheritance. But when he came to his senses, what, we're told that he went back to his father who ran to him with open arms and instead of striking him down, what did he do? He lavished him with love. He lavished him with the best things. Church, in our fallen, human, sinful nature, we're inclined to clean ourselves up before coming to God because we think that he'll love us more. If I just do this, if I just clean myself up, brothers and sisters, God doesn't want you to try to clean up your real-life Facebook account. Stop believing in that lie that if you edit out all of your flaws, all of your failures, all of your sins, either sinful action or sinful thought, sinful words, if you clean that up, that God will love you, that God will forgive you, that is a lie. That is not the gospel. That is contrary to the truth of God's word. Stop believing in that lie and instead humble yourselves by casting yourself upon your glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And he will forgive you. Brothers and sisters, by his grace, in his grace, he accepts you just as you are. He accepts you just as you are you are. And, and, and why, I was just reading this passage again this morning, and, and something stood out to me too that I, I missed the first time. Why, you know, God, it's not just about, um, God isn't just revealing, and I might slip because this is something new that I just saw this morning that, 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 um, that, that stood out to me, and so bear with me for a second if I start stuttering or stumbling here, but I just was like, wow, God, you're so amazing. So in verse 7, uh, it says, and the 
carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. God is not making a suggestion there. That is a promise that he is stating there. He's it's, it's revealing to himself. He's taking us back to the Davidic covenant. He's taking us back to promises that he made to David and to Solomon. And so what's glorious about this passage, something that just stood out to me again this morning, is that our sins will not get in the way of God accomplishing his plan of redemption. Why is he restoring this sinful king? It is to accomplish his plan. It is to accomplish his promise to David and to Solomon, which would eventually lead to the coming of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, if you are here struggling with your sin, you need to know right now that your sins will not get in the way of God's promise to you. He holds you in his hands. Do you remember what what Christ said? I believe it's in John chapter 10 where he says that he holds us in the palm of his hands. Not just that, his, his, his father also holds us in the palm of his hands. So brothers and sisters, you need to know right now that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Your sins are not strong enough to, to pull you away from that love grip of Christ. Believe that. Believe that. And so if you're struggling with some sin this morning, stop believing that your sins are greater than God's grace. Soak and bask in the grace of God found only in Christ alone. And as I said, God accepts you just as you are. But there's one thing that we need to cover as well, and that is, Manasseh's restoration in 14 through 16. It's important to know, let me read that for you. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gates and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offering and thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord and the God of Israel. It's, it's important to know that Manasseh didn't stop at repentance. He didn't stop at repentance. His, his repentance was evidence of a restored life, a renewed and revived life, a restored relationship with Yahweh. And, and what you need to know is that even though it's true that God will accept you and me just as we are, it's equally true that in in His grace, He won't leave you and me just as we are. God's grace has many facets and shade to it. His grace not only provides forgiveness, but it also provides transformative restoration. That, that inner restoration is the evidence of a repentant life, not the source of it. Do not mistake that. The, a repentant life, a renewed and restored life is not the source of, 
of God's forgiveness or the source of repentance. It is just the evidence of a repentant and restored life. And again, as I said earlier, that, uh, that, that previous passage was the Ephesians 2.4 of the Old Testament. I believe that it, this section right here, verses 14 through 16, is Paul's version of faith without works is dead. God doesn't only supply us with the grace to be forgiven of our sins, to be restored. He also supplies us with grace to transform us and to not leave us where we are at. Repentance, unto, the, the, Manasseh's repentance is not a repentance unto death. It is a repentance unto life. I think many in, in, in the, especially in the reform camps, I think we, uh, there's this imbalance that goes on when we talk about God's grace. We, we talk so, so boldly about the, the grace of God and, and the forgiving aspect of grace, but we so often forget to, uh, to, to talk about or to emphasize the other side of grace, which is really two sides of the same coin, the transformative aspect of God's grace, that he restores us. He causes, to, he causes us to be born again. He gives us new appetites, new desires. He gives us the willingness by his spirit to obey him. So brothers and sisters, yes, believe. Soak in the gospel of Christ. Rest in the free grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But equally so, believe and grab hold of the other aspect of grace. That you are a new creature. That God has given you a new heart. That God has delivered you from your slavery to sin. And that because you're renewed, you have the power by, through the Spirit, to obey Him. What a wonderful God we serve. What a gracious God is the God of the Bible. Church, if you're here this morning and you're carrying regrets from past failures, past mistakes that have led to devastating consequences in your life. You need to know right now that God's grace is greater than your sin. You can find peace for your distressed soul this morning. If you're here this morning and you've just recently made mistakes, maybe you were arguing on the way up here with your spouse. You need to know that God's grace is greater than your sin. And it, uh, another thing, if you're here this morning and you're one who is on the receiving end of someone's mistakes and failures, you need to know that God's grace is also available for you. His grace is greater than your resentment, greater than your bitterness, and His, great, His grace is available for you today. Brothers and sisters, we serve a wonderful and gracious God. What a wonderful gospel. What a wonderful Christ. I, I, I hope and pray with all of my, with every fiber of my being, I've heard it before, I hope that you walk away not, not from, from today's sermon, not thinking or saying to yourself, what a wonderful sermon, because I don't think it was that wonderful. I hope that you walk away from today's message saying in your heart of hearts, what a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Jesus, what a gracious and merciful Christ we have. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to find consolation, 
for your weary and anxious souls, and you will find it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great grace and for your mercy, which you bestow and lavish upon us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for your people here, anybody struggling with sin, that they would quickly repent and turn to Christ, run to the cross, and drink from the cup of your grace. Lord, show them again, remind them again, refresh their hearts again of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen.